Yeah, the Trump trial is pretty engrossing, I admit it, um, and it's distracting the public from a lot of things that are going on as a new presidential administration gets ramped up, <clears throat> things that are actually kind of worrisome for anybody who believes in individual liberty, uh, who believes in human dignity and independent thinking. So that's what we're gonna be talking about mostly today on this episode of Independent Outlook. Welcome everybody, I'm Graham Walker coming to you from the Independent Institute here in Oakland, California. We're just across the bay from San Francisco and we're delighted to have you with us today. We're also delighted to have our partners, thinkspot.com as partners uh, in this project. And we welcome all sorts of other people who are coming uh, to the program, to the broadcast on other platforms, including our YouTube channel, Facebook page, our Twitter page. Um, welcome to everybody who's joining us today for this conversation. <clears throat> So, um, as I said, uh, there's a lot going on other than the trial in the U.S. Senate, and some of it uh, deserves some attention. Uh, a lot of it, we really don't want to have it slip behind the scenes. So, while the country is absorbed in the trial, um, there are things that we're being distracted from, um, a whole bunch of them. Among them, I'm just for starters, um, and maybe the most obvious, this is February, and the trial is distracting us from Black History Month. Um, African-Americans have been a pivotal part of U.S. history from the beginning uh, and have been pioneers really uh, in the pursuit of liberty and individual rights throughout our history for obvious reasons. Um, Bill Evers is the uh, center director of our Center on Educational Excellence. He's going to talk to us about that a little bit in a minute. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. And also, we're so happy always to have David Throw, our president and founder. Welcome, David. Thank you. So on this matter of... Um, are being distracted from Black History Month that either of you might have some things to say. I know, Bill, you've been working on assembling some very important readings that uh, touch on the role of African-Americans in the quest for civil rights, among other things. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So I have online, if you go to the independent website and look for uh, crisis and civil rights and then this reading on race and civil rights. This is actually here. It is. If people want to look at it here. It's on many ind pages. Independent.org. Yeah, you go down this list, and there's all these incredible readings here. I'm not going to make everyone look. And at it's them annotated. Mm -hmm. So, and a lot of it's pretty current. I mean, just today in the newspaper, uh, Arkansas voted to. Uh, the, 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 there were people in the legislature that wanted to not use. The 1619 Project, which is a critical race theory approach to American history, very tendentious. America was uh, trying to dominate and crush blacks from the beginning. And uh, so some people in the legislature in Arkansas wanted to not use that, but it was voted down so they can use it. But of course, the nice thing is that nobody in Arkansas is using it yet, but now I guess they will have the green light. So uh, there's many, many topics in this bibliography. It's an annotated bibliography. There are links to uh, articles or books. Just going to go over a half dozen of the topics that are in there. Uh, yeah, just one give, is, give us a little handful of the best yeah, ones. Yeah. So the New Deal, how the New Deal was deliberately designed to hold blacks down, to lock in place segregated housing, to aid the white unions. And uh, so that was one of the things. Another topic that's in there is the Tulsa massacre. So this was a case where hundreds of blacks were killed in Tulsa, Alabama in the early Tulsa, 1920s. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, Tulsa. And the weird 
thing in addition is that when the blacks wanted to build back on their property, the white establishment tried to use building code <laughs> to stop them from rebuilding. So actually, the courts threw that out as a targeted uh, discriminatory thing. Kind of interesting. Uh, another another topic that's in there is identity politics and how that affects race relations, sort of in a twofold way. Especially some excellent books and articles by Shelby Steele uh, on how white guilt is fed by race hustler, hustlers and also tapped into by as a kind of a performative thing by people trying to one up other people i'm you know more mastering white guilt than you are <laughs> kind of crazy mm -hmm. stuff right and how in another sense this white guilt ends up leading to hostility between the races so shelby has great insights into this uh, another topic is uh that's kind of fascinating is marxist versus sort of regular people so marxists believe that slavery was fine in its own time when the uh, productive relations demanded slavery. So Marxism is a theory of history, and it says that the material productive forces, in other words, the organization of work and, and the society, governs everything else, morality and so forth. So they don't think before the present day, before the last couple of centuries, that Slavery was immoral. And Staunton Lind, who was certainly a left liberal, hardly our politics, but he says, no, look, the founders, the, the founding generation were right to hold up the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And those principles have slavery being immoral. The last topic I'm just going to mention here is uh, Woodrow Wilson, the famous progressive president of the United States. He's come under some criticism lately, but I myself have written about how the Wilson administration endeavored to deny blacks an academic education. So those are just a few of the many topics. It's pretty stunning um, to read through that bibliography. One thing I noticed when I was looking through it, Bill, is that at many pivotal moments in American history, it was the harnessing of governmental power Yes. the federal or state, which was uh, marshaled to stand in the way of property rights and individual liberty for black citizens. Yes. yes. Well, you can't really hold slaves unless you have some kind of force, at, at least at the back. Uh, you can try and induce a slave mentality in people, but nonetheless, some are going to try and escape. So you had slave patrols in the South where you conscripted people, white people, to be policing the slave system, you had the fugitive slave laws, you had all sorts of things that kept the coerce, were the coercive background to slavery. And the project of the abolitionist movement and the radical Republicans was to overturn that. Uh, the radical Republicans tried to recompense the slaves with a sort of 40 acres and a mule and to idea. to secure their property rights. Yes, yes and give them the vote to protect themselves and their property rights. That was the main idea of the vote in those days, not to get them welfare payments. Right. David, let me ask you to comment briefly on this before we move on, which is, am I not right, David, that both Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Delano Roosevelt 
are major figures in the pantheon of the progressive movement? Certainly. How then were they not, you know, pro-liberty for African-American citizens? Well, you have to understand the uh, progressive movement was not a movement for liberty. It was a movement that believed and still does believe that uh, society should be ruled by an elite of so-called experts, supposedly scientific experts or others. Uh, they believe that uh, fundamentally people don't have individual agency and needed to be corralled based on some criteria. Usually that would be group identity. And uh, one of our books uh, that we did is a book called Race and Liberty in America, which is a collection of about 100 writings of people um, on the idea of emancipation and individual liberty. Uh, most of these people were inspired by classical liberal ideas, which stood and stand in opposition to progressivism, which is really more of a collectivist perspective. Uh, the book is this one, actually, Race and Liberty in America. And Jonathan uh, Bean from Southern Illinois University is the editor of it. Uh, so uh, in Wilson's case, uh, he was a big advocate of eugenics, as were most of the elite at that time, right up into actually almost the end of World War II, in fact. And when the, the, um, the understanding of the Holocaust became public, uh, those who were advocates of eugenics backed off, especially when they found out that the Nazis were using the writings of eugenics advocates as the basis for their policies. So it's only within, I mean, progressive view has been the dominant view of the elite for 100 years, but it's changed. And so it, in some respects, it's uh, in the name of anti-racism today, you're actually, uh, progressives are pursuing a new racism. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that book is a fabulous book and it's, it's really too bad that the progressives went through one end and came out the other. So now they're neo-racists. That's right. Neo-racists. Yeah. And critical race theory is predictably progressive because it's rooted in the same fallacies. And it doesn't really matter uh, whether the facts are there or if it's logical. The, the question is whether it adheres to this, this ideology. And so the 1619 Project is full of historical errors, and they've admitted they don't really care. They want a narrative that they can use to uh, create a new direction in American uh, politics. Yeah, we've seen uh, Gordon Wood and James McPherson and right. other really top-level historians, James Oakes, John Oakes, uh, and so forth, criticize the, the project and say it's against the facts and the new york times has made the tiniest correction oh, that's right. so i would like to see actually more attention paid to black history rather than less especially attention that's really grounded in facts which tend to reveal as both of you have commented on this weird nexus between uh racial oppression and state power um, it needed to be broken uh, and we have a lot of heroes who helped do that and now we have a lot of people trying to claim that mantle who are actually pushing in the opposite direction for more power, more state power, more control, less liberty. Um, and that's bringing me to another thing I wanted to just move to here. Um, 
not only is the Trump trial distracting us from Black History Month, but also from, I think, it's just a larger phenomenon uh, in American culture, which David Thoreau has already uh, alluded to, uh, which is the kind of accelerating dominance of the culture by progressive elites. Um, we recently published a really interesting piece on our own website um, uh, here, independent.org, by Victor Davis Hanson, uh, who is a friend of Independent Institute. Uh, and he asks, why are progressives so illiberal? Um, it's worth reading this piece. As I say, it's on our website. Here's, the, here's what really struck me. <clears throat> I'm just reading um, a little segment of it. Uh, uh, Victor Hansen observes, uh, to be a Silicon Valley executive, a prominent Wall Street player, the head of a prestigious publishing house, a university president, a network or PBS anchor, a major Hollywood actress, a retired general admiral on a corporate board or an NBA superstar, now requires either progressive fides or careful suppression of all political affinities. And you know, you can't help but think that Victor's onto something when he observes that, uh, because in fact, all those kind of roles are largely excluding people who don't have the progressive view um, and others who may lack that progressive view. They're allowed in so long as they don't talk about it. Um, what's going on with America that even in the corporate world, you're not allowed to dissent from progressive pieties. Well, I think one point is uh, progressivism became the ideology, so the civic religion of elites at the end of the 1900, uh, 19th century and then into the 20th century. And um, there are reasons for that. But I think what's more interesting is that in seeking to control government power, they use that to subsidize themselves. So the institutions that they control <clears throat> are heavily influenced by government power and privilege and subsidy. Um, and so whether it's higher education or the public schools, or even the, the way uh, television networks exist, um, there's just all sorts of dimensions to this. And so uh, even though progressivism is a minority view in the American population, uh, for numerous reasons, not the least of which is that it's false and it doesn't fit with realities that most people face uh, from a common sense standpoint, if you have positions of privilege given to you by government, fiat or subsidy or both, you can hold on to the reign of power and use that to continue to essentially protect your station in life. And that station in life is to overlord uh, most people. <clears throat> so um, we've talked about this before, the work of Angela Cotevi and others like Victor Davis Hanson have talked about this uh, conflict between two groups of people, so-called political class and the country class. And uh, Victor's article uh, actually, in many respects, mirrors some of the things that Angelo's talked about as well. And, but it's brought it into, I think, sort of a high relief as far as the implications on schools, on speech, on all sorts of behavior. And the quote that you read, Graham, I think reflects that. Um, but it's not just the leaders of uh, this elite. It's also, if you're seeking to be upwardly mobile mm -hmm. in society, you have to be uh, sort of approved by elites at different levels uh, 
And if it looks like you're not politically correct, you're going to be canceled and you'll be thrown thrown out into uh, uh, another another sector that doesn't have that upwardly mobile opportunity based into built into it. And this is especially true with groups like blacks, since we're talking about Black History Month. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, I should also mention that in the Independent Review, we've had numerous articles pertaining to African-American issues. And one of them is uh, an article by one of our fellows, David Beto, and his wife, Linda Beto, uh, on three women, uh, one of whom was Nora, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, but also the other two being Rose Wilder Lane and Isabel Patterson. And they became classical liberals and they had very specific things to say about racial discrimination and Jim Crow and so forth, and how the government was actually uh, fomenting uh, and encouraging discrimination, just as Bill was talking about a few minutes ago. So, uh, Zora Neale Hurston is an interesting case. She she sort of she was a figure of the Harlem Renaissance, but she broke with a lot of the other people in the Harlem Renaissance who turned to the left, particularly turning to the Communist Party, people like Langston Hughes. And she herself became a Robert Taft senior conservative. And she stayed, you know, once she became an anti-communist, that was a central part of her thinking. She liked Taft because he didn't really believe in using the government to buy votes and to centralize power. She, She really liked that aspect of Taft. Uh, she was always afraid that central government efforts to help blacks, supposedly to help blacks, would end up just concentrating power. And so she was chary of the New Deal. She was chary of the desegregation efforts of the 1950s because she feared the centralization Mm. of power and the domineering Mm -hmm. attitude of government bureaucrats and of politicians. I mean, she was, she was completely against Jim Crow and did all sorts of things yes, against it. But she was against centralizing power exactly. to deal with it. Yeah. Exactly. Because these measures were local measures, primarily. Um, and she, her view of, of Roosevelt in the 1930s was that, as Bill was saying, uh, he was implementing policies that actually kept blacks down. Yeah, I'm thinking back to the corporate side of things. A lot of Americans have assumed that, well, you know, big business is always right wing. But it seems that that era is over with now because big business seems to be as much committed to the progressivist agenda as a lot of the other high points of culture like the media and the universities and institutions and so forth. What happened to corporate America? Why is it that in corporate America? In my experience, so going back to the early 1960s, I don't remember big business as being particularly right-wing. I mean, yes, there was kind of Chamber of Commerce Republicanism that Frank Chodorov used to make fun of, Rotary Clubs and things like that. I mean, you know, I've spoken to many Rotary Clubs. They're very good people in them, but... Rotary member myself. (laughs) exactly. My wife was an active participant in Rotary. But the point is, it's sort of, you know, very soft business, advance the interests of business, not individual liberty, not private property per se, but businesses. And uh, kind of the lodestone was Rockefeller Republicanism, which is a kind of big, big government 
viewpoint, uh, a kind of progressivism, not super left-wing progressivism, but nonetheless a kind of progressivism. And so if there were any leading thinkers among business elites, it, was, it, were, it were not uh, people who were close admirers of Ludwig von Mises or Hayek or Milton Friedman or Ayn Rand or somebody like that. They were people that looked for intellectual leadership to the Rockefeller brothers. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that uh, part of it was uh, people who went into business uh, would go to college and they would be educated in the progressive narrative. And when they went into work, uh, especially if they were successful, they would fall back, sort of a default position on, well, what do I do with my life and what, what is true and what's not? And you fall back into this progressive narrative. And so that's what they would end up uh, too often supporting. And then, and, uh, and also, um, as you know, to echo, echo Bill's point, is that um, if you are devoted entirely to maximizing returns on investment uh, without any other moral considerations or legal considerations, why not get subsidies? Why not use tariffs yeah. against your competition? Why exactly. not do all sorts of things, right? right. And uh, so that is part of the, uh, I think, part of the, the problem. Uh, I do think another way to look at this is that since progressivism was the ideology of the elite since the end of the, of the, the 19th century, it's really only been uh, since World War II that there's been a counter-revolution right. uh, intellectually against that. Uh, with Hayek's Road to Serfdom and, and other, you mentioned Milton Friedman, his book Capitalism and Freedom, and there are many others. Uh, and, and, and I wouldn't, uh, I would include Richard Weaver and Russell Kirk, and there are many other people who wrote critiquing this sort of um, pragmatic, opportune um, cronyism that uh, has dominated things. And I think that if you look at uh, many of these public issues, and certainly, certainly the most recent election, which is what Victor is referring to, Victor Davis Hanson, is the alliance of big labor, big tech, big business, big media, uh, was to support the reigning orthodoxy and the, uh, the existence of these special interests, padded, cozy ar arrangements. So I think to, to summarize David's point and my point, it's on the one hand, yes, the Rockefellers went to the Lincoln School. Yes, there lots of people get their minds formed in college by progressive professors. That's on the one side. But on the other side, cronyism, you can, you can put a patina over cronyism. You can put up a smokescreen around your efforts at subsidies and special privileges by using progressive rhetoric. And right. so as progressive rhetoric shifts from, say, Woodrow Wilson's time to the present time, the business leaders shift with it, and they, that's how they're going to rationalize getting special treatment. Mm -hmm. And a great example of this is Joe Biden himself. Uh, you know, Biden has been in politics for almost 50 years, and at different times he supported quite opposite things. He was, uh, he worked to protect segregation. He, he made just a whole litany of things. And it was basically what different interest groups wanted from government. And he was the person who would carry the water 
for these people to get those benefits. And that's what he's doing today. Uh, you can see that the nexus between big business and state power can be very profitable. And uh, there are even concrete ways, especially with, in the era of big tech. I mean, here we are, we're just a stone's throw from Silicon Valley here in Northern California. And, uh, you know, I think I learned recently that the former um, Facebook uh, uh, board member, Jeff Zenitz, was the co-chairman of the Biden transition team. Uh, and that Facebook has recently hired a Biden transition member, Roy Austin, to be their VP for civil rights. Um, there's a pretty cozy relationship um, that exists in a lot of tangible ways, um, which I find a little bit troubling. Sometimes, Graham, it's interesting how the mask slips. Uh, George Will, the columnist in the Washington Post and syndicated elsewhere, had an interesting column about Illinois, where they're the progressives are trying to make an overt part of teacher, teacher licensing and teacher certification. And the teachers have to agree, the prospective teachers have to agree that they will advance progressive interests, they will combat racism and sexism and Eurocentricism and unearned privilege. And this is, they have to explicitly sign wow. a pledge for it. That, that sounds creedal. That's like a creed you have to affirm. It's kind of it's kind of amazing when the when they let slip their their actual effort. A funny thing that happened in a horrible way is as part of this purge of names in San Francisco. So this is our neighboring city of San Francisco that's taking down the names of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and so forth. Well, they took off the name of the great writer of adventure fiction and also poet. Robert Louis Stevenson, who, who, by the way, spent time in Northern California. Uh, he wrote a thing called the Silverado Squatters about his time in the Napa area. But anyway, that aside, they took down his name. And the reason was because of a children's poem he wrote. And the amazing thing is, these are these people that are supposed to be in charge of education. They completely misunderstood his poem about foreign children. He is through exaggeration, mocking an insular, ethnocentric English child who, you know, s disdains the fact that foreign kids get to eat uh, ostrich eggs and get to have adventures with turtles and things that he doesn't have. But he says, oh, I'm fine, protected, you know. <laughs> and Stevenson is trying to get the kid to understand that hey, they're all, you're all children, you're all part of humanity, and these other people have different adventures from you, and that's all, and don't just look down on them. And that pro-cosmopolitanism poem, and you know, granted when the kid's very young, the parent might have to explain it to him, but the point is they attacked him and took his name down for that poem, which they completely 180 degrees misunderstood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, imagine try, you try and get a job as a teacher, not just in San Francisco, but in most school systems across the country. And if you don't express the right views, you know, it's going to be tough for you. Uh, same thing in the media, same thing in the arts institutions, same thing in the business world. Um, there is really, as Victor Davis Hanson says in that piece I mentioned at the beginning of this segment, um, there really is a kind of consolidation of ide ideation um, that uh, leaves little room in the name of breadth. It's extraordinary, exclusionary, uh, and it's no wonder that people react against that. And I, I, I basically am 
uh, anticipating that um, uh, even when the whole pro-Trump, anti-Trump thing is no longer at the center of our political agenda, we will still be struggling uh, with the fact that people are reacting understandably against the closure, the foreclosure of thinking in all of our leading uh, circles around progressive ideology. I think all three of us would agree that a major part of Trump's success in 2016 was that he mocked and pushed back against political correctness. And so by the time of this first term being over, people had kind of forgotten how that how overwhelming that had become during the second Obama administration. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to get it again. And I don't, I don't know whether it's Trump or somebody else that harnesses this reaction, that rides the surf of this reaction that is yeah. going to be to this. The reaction we'll have to is see, going to continue. I, I can't believe people are going to like it. Well, it's not only that, but I think that progressives, <clears throat> excuse me, progressives are so anxious and desperate to uh, restore their power in controlling the conversation right. and these policies that they're pushing them further and further. And the average person is seeing a lot of this and is seeing it as not what they thought Joe Biden was about. Joe Biden allegedly was a moderate, but they're seeing this really kooky, uh, antisocial, dangerous stuff being pushed. Uh, And then within the political context, say in California, we have a recall movement, which I think is just just now reached 1.5 million signatures, which is what they need, but they want to get 2 million just to have a safety factor. And with the Supreme Court's Janus decision, uh, which says that unions cannot compel people to, to be belong and have to pay union dues, in California, um, the, uh, the unions, especially the, the government employee unions, are quite upset with the fact that there's a growing campaign uh, which is having some positive effect on showing uh, union members, including public school teachers, they do not have to pay dues. Um, Assemblywoman uh, Kylie has been pretty vocal on this, and others have as well. And I think that this is going to be uh, really a battleground. Uh, the unions, of course, were the, the effort that pushed through AB5, the Assembly Bill in California, to ban independent contracting and freelance work. And then Biden says he wants to make it national. He does say that. The, a, the average person hears this, um, as well as shutting down the Keystone Pipeline construction and, and so on and so forth, uh, not to mention all sorts of uh, cultural, culture war issues, which are, are pretty shocking. Uh, and so I think that we're going to see that the effort by progressives to push this even further could very well back uh, create a backlash against them. At least it's educating people to see uh, the contradictions and the hypocrisy that is uh, is part of this whole situation. There are a lot of concrete expressions of this. Um, I'm looking here at a list of a whole bunch of President Biden's executive orders since taking office. There's one January 20, one of the first day. It's the one executive order on preventing and combating discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation. I mean, it's a complicated uh, issue, and I'm not one don't want to oversimplify it. But clearly, one of the things that he has identified in this executive order is to redefine what sex discrimination is uh, in U.S. law, 
to mean something quite different from what it meant back in the 1960s when the Civil Rights Act was passed, uh, defining sexual discrimination as including discrimination on the, on the basis of gender identity, um, including, of course, uh, decisions that individuals mean, feel they need to make about uh, if they were biologically female, they want to be considered male or vice versa. These are things that, that go far beyond the original meaning of the law and that many people didn't think they were voting for when they voted for you know, the moderate Joe Biden. Well, I think, the, I think it comes down to the point that I think most people are very tolerant and open to people making choices over their own bodies and relationships and, and so on and so forth. I think the line is drawn when it's imposed on people. And the most visible thing that's being posed now is on women's sports. And it is uh, clearly an issue that cannot be uh, resolved that a biological male can compete with a biological female in track and field or many sports um, and be viewed as a fair playing ground. And so we haven't heard the end of this. Uh, if people want to be want to be trans, fine, but that doesn't mean they have the right to enter women's sports if the criteria for the women's sports is to be biological female. And so, and it goes in, into the schools and many other things. So it's again, it's this progressive default that you believe X, and by God, you're going to impose it on others who don't agree with you, and that's not the basis of a free society. Free society is a society of openness and tolerance and people making choices, but not imposing them on others. There are a lot of other things that fall into this overall progressive agenda, which I, I, I'm saying that we're, we're getting distracted from these concrete things by the Trump trial and the attendant controversies. But did you see the one where President Biden has mandated by executive order that for purposes of reapportionment of congressional seats, illegal immigrants in the country, that is those who enter the country without going through the proper legally established procedures, they need to be counted for purposes of apportionment. In other words, according to President Biden and uh, his new order, uh, representation in the U.S. House of Representatives will be allocated according to not just citizen residents, but also non-citizen illegal residents in the U.S. They will be given representation. I don't understand um, how that can be obviously good. It seems to be highly problematic. Well, I think it, it's uh, it's problematic in that it it is discriminating against people, uh, some people in favor of another group. What's what's recently came out at a press at a press conference with um, Biden's press secretary was the issue of COVID screening, and so uh, uh, the COVID screening measures for someone to fly in on an airplane or be on a bus or a train, um, and now it, you have to have, uh, apparently, it's likely, they're, they're talking very seriously about having a restriction in which you cannot travel unless you have a, uh, a recent negative test on COVID and proof on your papers, but uh, someone coming across the border, there's no problem. In fact, they'll, put, they'll subsidize putting them up in hotels and all sorts of other things. So the issue confuses the issue of free, mig free migration and respect for human dignity by preferring one group over another, and they're doing it for political reasons. So again, it's, it's using government power in ways it was not 
from a classical liberal standpoint, intended to be used. Uh, Bill and David, what do you think about President Biden's order on <clears throat> reinstating aluminum tariffs and on his Buy, buy right. American plan? Is there right. some good in those? It's another example of this, this uh, sort of industrial policy view. So tariffs on aluminum are good. Tariffs on products from China are bad. Uh, and so the, the tariffs on aluminum... We're not saying that. We're saying that by making these policies, right. they are saying that. That's right. And the tariffs are, are aimed at the United Arab Emirates on aluminum uh, because there are groups in the United States who don't want to compete with aluminum producers in the UAE. So it's, it's who has the power and influence to get what they want uh, using government power. And Biden, as I said, his career has been this. This is what he is. Right. He is a person who essentially serves the swamp. How about the $15 minimum wage? He was, I think he was for it before he was against it, or was he against it before he was for it? So he campaigned, say, so this was <clears throat> part of his effort to get progressive bona fides and to try to suck in the Senator Warren and Senator Sanders supporters. So he said he was for this. The Republicans, in this case, having studied some economics and also hearing from small businesses that would not be able to exist, continue to exist and serve customers if this were imposed on them, uh, have said, no, we are not going to be part of anything that has the $15 minimum wage. And they have been adamant about this. It's kind of charming to see them have their backbone on something. So he's now, he's not saying I'm against it. He's saying, well, I understand that probably it can't be in the package and we'll try and advance it separately. That's and, how he's doing yeah. it. Okay. So he's backing away, but not backing away. It's kind of and a similar steps. issue is the Keystone Pipeline. Yeah. So this was a promise to environmental groups, uh, climate alarmists especially. Right. Uh, the AFL-CIO is not happy about this because they have many members who are workers on the pipeline. I think it was 16 attorney, uh, state attorneys general have now filed the lawsuit or sent a letter, I guess, to Biden is what it is, asking him to rescind his ban, his executive order. So you have these different groups competing to get the king to favor them. Right. And who has the most political clout is going to win. Now, Biden, of course, is doling out goodies to this assortment of interest groups that supported him, many of them. Uh, disagree on things, especially when you get into the critical race and gender area uh, where they're fighting with each other. Uh, the trans issue is, and there are many, there are key feminist groups that are against attacking women's sports, for example. So it is exactly the opposite of what Adam Smith uh, was advocating in his book, The Wealth of Nations. Uh, We've talked about before that when Smith wrote his book, The Wealth of Nations, it was attack, an attack on an economic system called mercantilism. Mercantilism was a system in which the king or the parliament or whoever would grant royal privileges to different businesses or guilds or artists or educators that only they could practice or they would have special access and be subsidized or get 
protectionist sheriffs and so forth. And his argument was, if we eliminated this, the whole society would boom, would boom, including those people. And it's really not defendable to be in a position to pick winners and losers. Now, economists call this idea of picking winners and losers in the, in the economy industrial policy, which Wilson and Roosevelt, who we talked about briefly, uh, and progressives in general are big advocates of. And that's surely what we're seeing now in healthcare, in green, green energy policy, uh, it's gonna be all sorts of different things. And the average person, especially the poorest, suffer from it. Because of higher prices, there'll be less employment opportunities, far less upward mobility opportunities. Uh, but the interest groups don't care. They want what they can get directly and essentially have the public pay for it. So it's interesting. Uh, there was a political scientist who was quite prominent in the mid-20th century named Ted Lowy, Theodore Lowy. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wrote about how liberalism had sort of changed. So we think of classical liberalism, we're thinking about uh, liberty being the highest political goal. We're thinking about private property as something that uh, is a gr grounding for people and something that's protected from interference by the state. We're thinking of market transactions, uh, rights of contract being uh, upheld and so forth. But when we get to interest group liberalism, as Lowy termed it, we're talking about these congeries of interests, these organized efforts at gaining special privileges and something that economists call rent-seeking, which is sort of a, if you understand why, what rent can mean to an economist, it's understandable. But it's simpler to just, for us in regular terms, to call it special privilege-seeking. Um, this is now the basis of the Democratic Party coalition and of the general liberal movement. And its more progressive wing leans more heavily on identity politics and racial privileges. So it's kind of a large trans transformation of liberalism. Um, we, the three of us, much prefer the classical liberal approach to a good society. But these ruling elites and the Biden administration have harnessed special interests and made a coalition of them to be their ruling uh, power. David made a very colorful imagery a moment ago, when David, when you said that everybody's contending for, to the king, trying to get the king to dole right. out stuff to them. You know, and, and the question that we really should ask is, well, not whom should the king give his stuff to, but why does the king have so much stuff to give away? Right. Now, exactly. Lowy, I believe, was at Cornell, right? Correct, correct. And uh, the idea of the classical liberal view, uh, for those who don't know the terminology, is a tradition of uh, ideas that the individual is sacred and uh, has rights, and that those rights come from God and not from a majority or minority or the king or some engineering study or something. It's, it's, it's inalienable, as the founders discussed. And there are many writers who contributed to this, this uh, tradition going back to the ancient world, but through the Middle Ages and to 
the Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment period. And so, as you know, Smith was one. Uh, the 20th century, Hayek was another. Um, and they didn't all agree on everything, but the idea was that liberty, to be a liberal, meant to be in favor of liberty. Um, and the purpose of government is to protect liberty and to, to, to essentially facilitate the adjudication of disputes. And the law was there to protect the rights of individuals and uh, not to do the opposite, not to trample on rights and be used by some group because they have more people behind them or more access to the king or whatever to get their way. And again, getting back to Smith, Smith's critique of mercantilism was the same view that America's founders had and why they wanted to radically constrain the power of government to disperse powers. And, uh, you know, this recent impeachment uh, is an example of people using constitutional traditions and text uh, to advance their own agendas and without little regard, in my opinion, for what might what, what this might lead to as far as the purpose of the Constitution in the first place. So it's interesting th this special interest grabbing is very manifest in the controversies over how to dispense and disperse and uh, the vaccine, yep. and also in the controversy over school reopening that's all over television and all over the front pages of the print newspapers. Right. And uh, I think, you know, it's amazing to see Biden centralizing power over distribution, sending in military troops into five locations and looking to send tens of thousands more of military troops in to control the distribution, uh, the dispensing of these vaccines. And, you know, now there's a scramble, you know, our grocers, our truckers, our teachers, get to segue into the teacher reopening question, but everybody is scrambling to be considered most essential, more essential. And uh, so we're seeing this interest group scramble going into the vaccine question. And uh, the president is also, and President Biden is interfering with the production side. He, so there's a part of federal procurement that is called the Defense Production Act. And this involves, you know, in wartime, Mises actually wrote how this is a dumb idea. But anyway, they have this law that the federal government can interrupt and interfere with production uh, and, you know, allocate resources and commandeer equipment and all, whatever. And so Biden is like pretending, well, we're in a military conflict here just uh, with a disease, right? <laughs> or something like that. I always... You know, you always just check when they say war on poverty, when they say war on drugs, when they say war on whatever. Terrorism. Just watch out. They're going for your wallet and they're going for more power for themselves. Or terrorism. Watch out for your civil liberties. Yeah, war on terror. Take away your civil liberties. So, and then a similar thing is going on with this school reopening. I'm sure we all have thoughts on that. But... Uh, so the interesting thing is to see Biden go back and forth and to see Randy Weingarten, who's 
the most outspoken of the teachers union leaders. She's the head of the American Federation of Teachers. See her go back and forth. Uh, I, I'll just pause to let the rest of you say something about the school reopening because we all see stuff on it and we all have opinions. I mean, are, are, the, are the teachers unions against school reopening because they don't want to be their members to be infected with the virus? Well, the, the CDC has announced twice that the schools should reopen to their credit. Right. The science does not defend the closure of the schools. Right. Uh, there is virtually zero probability of children getting COVID-19 and passing it on to adults. Right. Uh, so what the unions have proposed uh, is not following the CDC. In fact, Biden has been attacking the CDC recently. Uh, what they're proposing is that the schools reopen, but only one day a week. But first, all the teachers have to be vaccinated or some large percentage of them. So bearing in mind that the teachers are young, the, that the, the people are who young, are having the, the worst right. cases of COVID are males and that the teachers don't get it uh, when they do get it. They don't get it from children. They get it from their extra school wall, extramural activities. And so in effect, what we have is a strike going on right yes. now by right. teachers mm -hmm. in the guise of public health concerns. Yes, and while, there, while this, this uh, shutdown, strike, whatever is going on, the teachers are being paid. Right, for, and for less, fewer hours. For less, fewer hours. So Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago has, to her credit, has been fighting- A the, left liberal, hardly a, left a liberal, conservative. Right, progressive, right. Uh, has been fighting the, uh, the, the unions in Chicago, which I think is the second, is the second largest, yeah. the third largest yes, school is. district in the country. And uh, so people have been talking about Reagan's firing of the um, air traffic controller union. She's now got what she hopes is an agreement with them. Yeah, but she thinks, who but knows? the point, who knows, yeah. right. But in California, you've got a similar situation and so forth. So uh, the children are not even part of the discussion, really. And so more and more parents, again, to echo what I was saying before, more and more people, in this case parents, have seen that the union, the teachers unions and the public schools are not serving their children. They have to pay through, for it through their taxes. Uh, and what's being taught, what they're proposing to teach in school, like the 1619 project or whatever, um, is crackpot. Why do I, why do I want my, my child to come home believing this nonsense? Sex ed or whatever it is, there's all sorts of other things. And we're talking about kindergartners or first grade. And so more and more people are forced to, to opt for other possibilities uh, necessary to, to uh, educate their children, but they're not trained as educators. And um, I have also mentioned in the past, we have a book coming out called Really Good Schools, which shows how you can have uh, universal, low-cost private schools for the poor and everybody else. Uh, and But this would be a great threat to the teachers unions. And in California, I forget the numbers, but the increase in enrollment in public schools has been dropping, while the, the enrollment in charter schools has been increasing, uh, actually quite dramatically. And one of the things that, that Biden 
and the unions want to do is essentially eliminate the charter schools. They are pushing back against charter schools. I right. think another thing is, I mean, this is maybe being too nice to Randy Weingarten and other union leaders, but there's always a danger in these teachers unions of some rival turning your left flank. Yes. So they have elections in these unions. And I mean, admittedly, they're kind of perpetual oligarchies where the leadership is mostly self-co-opting. But there's pressure from the left all the time and demagogues within the unions that are, we, we kind of think of Randy Weingarten as pretty extreme kind of, <laughs> but it, to really know the inside of teachers union politics, she is kind of a moderate in this, in this arena. So she also, because of her long experience and her being the head of the union and the teachers union in New York City, she's very attuned to public opinion and politics. And she has seen that the parents are just, the frustration of the parents is accumulating. Yep. So right. here, heretofore, she's been very deferential to the worries of teachers because that's her constituency. And that's yeah. who, you know, as her predecessor in that union once said, well, when children start to pay dues, we'll pay. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> wow. But anyway, uh, the point is, she can't lose the goose that lays the golden egg. And if the parents turn against the public school system, as David is you know, indicating in the regular public schools, that will be the worst outcome, worst long run outcome for the teachers unions. So she is now trying to figure out a modus vivendi where they walk off with the most loot from their uh, their, their quasi-strike, whatever we want to call it, and open the schools in some capacity. That was the proposal. That's kind of what's happening. And, and right. Biden promised all, you know, everybody back in school within 100 days. Well, you know, time is marching on. His unions have been resisting it. He's got his own CDC saying it's quite safe. You don't need the teachers to be vaccinated. And his own press secretary is having to, you know, put down the head of the CDC and say, well, we are waiting, we're looking. Don't She was speaking in her personal capacity, even though she's at the official government briefing. No, if you're at an official government briefing, you're not speaking in a personal capacity. So the question is, should we be deferring to unions or to scientists on these matters? Well, I think we should be deferring to the parents. But anyway, yeah, science also. I think also. parents, right. But I think we should also, you know, to be clear and honest, uh, science has been nationalized and politicized. And it's not just COVID, it's climate, it's all sorts of things. Uh, and so uh, Anthony Fauci is not a scientist. He's a, he is a public administrator bureaucrat. And I mean, just one little example is you know, it's, it's now been shown that he and Francis Collins, uh, when Obama overruled their interest in doing studies to create a COVID-19 type strain, banned that in the United States, they then shifted the funds and subsidized the lab in Wuhan to develop the strain. And now that's been corroborated. 
Uh, no one mentioned it before, certainly Fauci didn't. Uh, and his changing his positions on masks and vaccinations and um, herd immunity and you know every single thing about all the different controversies repeatedly is, a, is an indication that he's not basing it on the science. And those scientists who, who've, who have been basing it on the actual empirical studies are ridiculed and demonized because they're not in sync with the politically, politically correct. Uh, Even if they're at top universities and have right. fabulous yeah. records of scholarship. Exactly, that's right. So uh, I mean, one of the reasons why Independent Institute was started was to try to sift through uh, a lot of this confusion, this fog, and base work solely on the integrity of the studies, uh, which can be backed up. And to the credit of the scholars and fellows that we've worked with, we've never had a single study refuted. Not because there's something magical about us, but because we're not, we will not get sucked into the, the temptation to be politically correct or opportunistic or to get that next government grant or to satisfy the politics of your department uh, or some editorial page pressure. And of course now uh, all these reports uh, you know, we're talking about Cornell, where Lowy was. Um, there's a professor there who is viciously attacked. Um, he's now created a website uh, that monitors colleges all over the country uh, so that parents will have an understanding of what schools have mandated courses in critical race studies. Mm, very useful and, information. Right. And so, again, there's a pushback, I think, that's happening. It's a battle of ideas, but I do think the dominance that progressivism has had in the elite has been chipping away steadily. And the very fact that institutions like Independent and many others, uh, which are separate private uh, think tanks and educational institutions, as well as a growing number of scholars in traditional higher education institutions who are critiquing these kinds of uh, fallacious views and are willing to take the heat for it is a very positive sign. Because if progressivism is held up and challenged, we do not believe it can hold up to the scrutiny. And that's why I think you have this cancel culture response. The solution is not to out-argue the, the, the challenger. The solution is to shut down that person and to silence them. I also should mention briefly that this problem is not unique to the Democratic Party. Uh, the Republican Party has long had, and you mentioned uh, the Rockefellers, for example, but it's not a partisan issue. It's an, it's an idea, it's a cultural, uh, ideological point. And uh, again, Adam Smith didn't write his book to favor one party over another. It was basically the powers that government was doling out and the fallacy of doing that. Right. You know, David, you and Bill are old enough to remember this, what I'm about to say, maybe some of our participants may be too, but back in the 1970s, uh, the Soviet Union agreed to the Helsinki Accords, which included commitment to individual human rights and so forth. Uh, they didn't mean it, you know, when they agreed to it, but it turned out to be a pretty useful leverage against their power. <clears throat> okay, now fast forward 
this may be seem like a weird stretch, but I'm, I'm looking at the text of President Joseph Biden's executive order, January 27, uh, on restoring trust in government through scientific integrity and evidence-based policymaking. Okay, I like the idea of scientific integrity and evidence-based policymaking. Maybe we can uh, affirm President Biden's aspiration there, but maybe insist that it be ad uh, upheld, uh, adhered That's right. to. Right. And so it, it's true with all sorts of it, um, aspects of this of this question, you know, the to uphold standards of truth and excellence, and uh, morality and so on and so forth, um, are the so the is the virtuous thing to do, uh, and if people are cutting corners or being hypocrites or fudging the facts, whatever, right. That needs to be pointed out in the name of integrity. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So that actually, you know, I'm not sure what he means by it, but I know what the words mean, and I, I like the words. Right. It's interesting. Yep. The uh, the No Child Left Behind Act that was put in by the George W. Bush administration had its numerous problems, but one interesting thing when it was that it called for uh, reading instruction and any federal aid that was going to go to somehow support reading instruction had to be based on scientifically based findings about how children learn to read best. Needless to say, the progressive education, antiphonics people went bonkers over this, pushed it back mm -hmm. very hard. Eventually, it kind of got watered down. Another thing that happened in the George W. Bush administration, so I served in the U.S. Department of Education as an assistant secretary during this administ that administration, was that uh, it called for uh, setting up a Institute of Education Sciences and a website that had evidence-based things about various ways of teaching. So. These things still exist, but who got contracts? There were supposed to be things where there were, uh, you know, the most gold standard of research, which is having uh, control groups and, and so forth, trying to, that's all been washed out. And it's no longer, the, name, the words of science are all still there. But the politics has watered it down and the interest group pressures right. have watered it down. Listen, I want to I want to bring it to a close in a few minutes here, but I, I'm getting a few interesting comments from our participants. Um, some of them may be a little bit too much in the red meat category. Uh, but, but here's one. Um, this is probably from a Californian uh, who notices that in California, uh, the tendency of state power, especially in the governor's office, to bend to special interest groups is worrisome. Uh, so uh, you mentioned already there's a recall vote going on here, recall petition underway in California. So this this participant asks us, um, in the recall vote, Falconer and Cox won't win against Newsom. Who can triumph over the emperor? Any short takes on that? Well, there are several possibilities. You know, we could get a worse Democrat than right. Newsom who runs and let's say the teachers unions flip from Newsom to that worse Democrat. That's something that could happen. I think uh, there are some other names that are being floated around. I had somebody call me and suggest that Larry Elder should run. He really doesn't have experience in elected office. 
Uh, Rick Grinnell. Rick Grinnell is held. He's was the Trump intelligence officer, and he's been with the UN in various capacities, U.S. delegation to the UN. But he doesn't, and he's an excellent spokesperson. He was ambassador to Germany, wasn't he? Yes, correct. All those things. But he doesn't really have a record in California politics, even though right. he lives here, mm -hmm. and he hasn't really participated in that. All of these people have name recognition problems. How about David Thoreau? Not on your <laughs> life. <laughs> David is too smart to be <laughs> do that. It's not just that. My wife would. Yes, we want to keep a happy, happy <laughs> do family. Do something really unpleasant. Faulkner is a very experienced, he's led a you know, major city, he's an immediate past mayor of San Diego. He's a moderate Republican. Uh, he'd definitely be an improvement. Uh, I think we just have to see what kind of campaign emerges. So when you vote in California, assuming they have a recall, it's yes or no on the recall. And then they're simultaneously holding a vote on a replacement who could be the existing governor so he could be recalled and then simultaneously reelected. Right. And then the, in that vote on the people, it's the person who has the most votes. So it's not necessarily a majority, it's the person right. who has the most votes. Hey, may, maybe Gavin Newsom could call up Scott Walker and ask for a little political guidance. Well, I mean, also I think the, the reasons why Newsom is being recalled are issues that are so clear and uh, disturbing. You know, it's the wildfires, it's the blackouts, it's right. the school closures, it's the hypocrisy right. of, you know, the eating of the French laundry. Right. Yeah. It's the unemployment office with the Absolutely. missing millions. Yes. And poor, poor administration. Exactly. That's right. And so uh, a successful candidate simply needs to embrace solutions to those things. It's right. not terribly Absolutely. difficult to figure that out. Absolutely. And I think in the previous election, uh, the Republican candidate, although he may, uh, John Cox may well agree with these things, his campaign was empty on talking about these issues. And that's what people were looking for. So I think that if Falconer runs, I, thought, I hope he has the good sense to embrace and uh, pursue these, these issues in a forthright way, which is what people are looking for. They, they, they want to get out from under the tyranny of crackpot views that are destroying their lives. Okay, so that's the California thing. Um, I'm going to skip back to a final uh, national thing coming to you, David, I guess. Um, uh, I, I framed this whole discussion today as uh, what is the Trump trial distracting us from? And we've covered that territory pretty well, but you know, we have some participants who are wanting a little comment on the thing itself. Uh, here's a comment from one of our participants. What is the end result of this Trump trial? David, you want to take a final crack at that before we say goodbye to our friends? Well, I think it is true that he'll be acquitted. I don't think the votes in the Senate are there, and they will be. Uh, I think the Trump attorneys are not doing a particularly good job. Um, the, uh, the Democrat uh, impeachment lawyers had a very slick sort of MSNBC documentary, which was, by the way, uh, not an honest presentation of the issues. Um, uh, and but it was aimed at you know the average person who might be watching uh, the proceedings. And uh, I think the Democrats uh, could very well be uh, shooting themselves in the foot 
on a number for a number of reasons. One is they'll lose, and Trump will be acquitted, uh, and he will not be prevented from running again. And this will strengthen his hand. Um, the second thing is the idea of impeaching a, a man who is no longer in the office of president opens up a real can of worms for the Democrats because then could they go after Obama? Could they go after Carter? Could they go after Clinton? I'm very generous. I'm willing to go after Woodrow Wilson. Just the <laughs> fact that he's dead, that shouldn't make any difference. It shouldn't. But I think I, I, one thing that Trump attorneys do mention, which is very clear, is that the term the president means the current president. It's not a president. Um, and so they're opening a can of worms where impeachment can be used by the Congress if the president does anything they don't like and they just vote and he's impeached. It turns, it turns the American system, right. it gives it an additional parliamentary system yes, cast. Yes, that's right. And so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a turn which is a dangerous turn. And it, uh, obviously the, the U.S. government is primarily the executive branch. That is certainly true and that needs to be radically reined in. That's right. But this is to the, some extent, excuse me, I, I, you were saying great stuff, but isn't this kind of a reaction to the imperial presidency in a sense? It is because the executive orders are unconstitutional in themselves, right? Right. Uh, there's a, and there's a lot of aspects we can peel back. But I think overall, um, if the Congress can impeach someone by simply a vote without any due process or anything, and the Congress isn't the other party or is captured by some group and they don't like a tax cut or what, you know, whatever it might be, then uh, the chances of uh, moving forward, you know, the president under the constitutional system is supposed to be executing what Congress uh, votes on. And if, the, uh, uh, if that doesn't align with what the ruling party or the next ruling party comes into power, including people who are not in power anymore, uh, who would ever want to be president and who would ever make any decision that would uh, put that person into jeopardy? It's, it's, it's really a, uh, a Pandora's box, I think, that uh, progressives don't want to see opened. But I think that's what they're doing. Thank you, David and Bill. That's, that's a very helpful summary uh, uh, on that critical point. There may be a number of participants who wish we would have discussed that the whole time. <laughs> we. We, uh, sorry to disappoint you on that. We did think that there's a whole lot of other stuff going on that's distracting us and needed some attention. I think there's some excellent scholars and uh, uh, who you can turn to, you know, Ken Starr, and there are many others who've been in this field for years. Uh, Dershowitz, Richard Epstein has written about this and many others. And so I would turn to them uh, and not the politicos to, to sort through what's going on, what should be going on, and what it might mean. So two weeks from now, we will reconvene uh, with the three of us and with all of our friends to discuss uh, what's happening at that point. Maybe by then this whole thing will have come to a conclusion and we can move on, um, we'll see. Uh, but regardless, um, I thank David Thoreau and I thank uh, Bill Evers for this interesting conversation today. Thank you. Thank you.
Very grateful to have you and all of our friends on thinkspot.com. Thanks, ThinkSpot, for partnering uh, with us in this. And let me encourage everybody who's on with us today. You can always go to independent.org to find the latest take on many issues, as well as deeper resources and even references to our journals and books, uh, which, as we mentioned during the course of this conversation, provide a lot of depth uh, in the background of many public issues. So with that being said, thanks for joining us for Independent Outlook and join us again in a couple of weeks. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.